of a nature. The next marker is Shechin. Now, we're already a few months into the process, and still not only has Paro not agreed to let the Jewish nation go, at this point he's not even allowed the men to leave. Take, fill your cup of your hands, fill your palms with the piach kivshan. Piach kivshan is the soot that's emitted from the from the burning wood, from the coal that uh, the wood that burns the uh, the kivshan, the furnace. Vizarko Moshe Shemayim, and Moshe should throw it up to Shemayim Le'ene Paro in the eyes of Paro. Now this mark of Shin, as the Rabbeinu Bachai tells us, each maka had a nace within the nace. The first part of this maka that was very unusual as a nace was the fact that the the piach kivshan the soot was Hashem said to Aaron and Moshe take two handfuls each of you cup two handfuls of this soot so Aaron took a full two handfuls now normally when you take two handfuls with your hands cupped together you take a big pile of soot so Aaron took two handfuls this big pile Moshe took two handfuls and then Hashem said Moshe should throw it to Shemayim the only problem is that Aaron has two handfuls Moshe has two handfuls Aaron takes his two handfuls, put it, puts them into Moshe's single hand. Why? Because Moshe has to throw it to Shemayim. Well, you throw a single, one-handed. So the nace within here was the fact that the two handfuls of Aaron went into the two handfuls of Moshe. Moshe held it in one hand. Now, soot has no body to it. It just, it's silt. It just can, but a, Moshe was able to hold the effectively four handfuls. He threw it upwards to Shemayim. Now, the Medrash says very clearly that when you throw something as like talc, some type of powder, it goes maybe four amas. The nace here was that not only was Moshe able to throw this amount, he threw it up and it went up way, way high in the sky and it spread over the land of Mitzrayim. The land of Mitzrayim, the Gemara says, is 400 parsa by 400 parsa, quite a large area. So the nace was, the nace within the nace was that this talky sort of soot spread across the whole land of Mitzrayim. Now if you can imagine that the soot is starting to slowly, slowly settle down. It'll be dirt, dust on all Eretz Mitzrayim. It'll be a man and behemoth. Boils that bubble up. Ababuos. Ababuos actually is a lot of bubbles. The whole Eretz Mitzrayim and all the land of Mitzrayim. In fact, Moshe and Aaron did this. In front of Paro, they stood. Moshe threw it to Shemaim. And it was these boils bubbling up in man and behemoth. Now, Shechin was a particularly aggravating maka. These This fine soot slowly, slowly starts settling down on Mitzrayim. It starts kind of gently touching down. Whenever it touched, wherever it touched, a bubbly boil would form. Now what happened was that it caused a burning sort of effect so that the skin inside would emit a fluid. And there weren't little tiny blisters, but actually large full-size blisters that would form. The unusual part was that the soot came down all over Mitzrayim, so every Mitzrayim was hit all over from head to toe with these boils, this burning sort of talc 
entered, hit them, and the skin became blistery, boily bubbles. Now, what was especially annoying about it was the fact that when you have pressure inside your skin, there's the liquid pushing out, so that causes pressure inside the skin, and it's aggravating. If you have a pimple that's ripe, it pushes, and it, and it hurts. It, it very much hurts. So what happened is, naturally, what you'd want to do is you'd want to lessen the pressure. So you'd put something dry on the outside to sort of absorb the, the moisture so it would lessen the pressure. The problem is that the skin on the outside, the skin became brittly dry. Very, very brittle. So brittle that you needed to put a moisturizer on the outside. But when you put something moist on the outside, it transfers through the skin. The skin is basically porous. So it makes the bubbly part stronger and that hurts more. The minute you do that, the broken skin, the outside skin, which is dry, also starts getting more aggravated and it starts to break. So you couldn't put a dry thing on it because a dry thing, your outer skin is dry. You can't put a moist thing on it which you want to because it makes the bubble inside uncomfortable. They couldn't stand, they couldn't walk, they couldn't move for seven days. In other words, if you bend your arm, one of these bubbles popped and it was very, very painful. If you sat down, one of these things popped. Well, you All over your skin, from head to toe, were these bubbly boils. Now, what's also interesting to note is that the midstream who are outside, we understood how they got hit. If the sand, the soot, whatever this touched them, they got filled with the boils. What about if a midstream got smart? Now, by this time already, some of the midstream were getting wise to the fact that what Moshe said actually happened. So some of the midstream were wise enough to hide inside. So Mephoshim explained that the wind sort of blew this soot inside, and even a midstream who was inside got hit with this, and his entire face body, arm, chest, every single part of his body became filled with this shin and he could not exist. He couldn't live with himself in this scratchy, again you can't scratch it, you're scratchy, so itchy, you have to scratch it, but you can't scratch it. When you scratch it, it rips open the skin and it's a very painful situation. Now, the next passage says, because of the shin. So the Rishonim say, the reason why they couldn't is because they were embarrassed. Because if you can imagine, we have in Yavamas, we've heard of a mukas shchin, a man who's hit with shchin. It's a very embarrassing, defiguring condition. Your whole face, your skin, your neck, your every part of your body is these bubbly blisters. They were embarrassed beyond belief. They couldn't stand in front of Moshe because of this tremendous embarrassment. And this, again, lasted for the full seven days of the Makkah. In the end, Vayichazek Hashem is leif paro. Hashem hardens paro's heart. And he didn't listen. Now this is the first Makkah where the Lushan says Hashem hardens his heart. We've been through Dam, Tzvardeya, Kinim, Orov, Dever. Five Makkahs, not once do you notice that it says Hashem hardens his heart. This is the first Makkah where the language of the Pesach says Hashem hardens his heart. And the Sfuno explains that the reason, and this is important to understand in terms of Bechira, up until this point it was possible with Paro, with his own obstinacy, with his own stubbornness, to resist what was happening. But by this Makkah already, it was so obvious, and Hashem was so showing the, the Koach of Hashem, that no human being could possibly resist, and Paro would have let them go. However, it would not have been because of tshuva. It would not have been because he had charata for what he did. He was so broken and so destroyed. It was sort of like he was pushed to the ground and Hashem Kaviyoch was stepping on him that he wouldn't let him go because, uncle, I can't resist anymore. 
but it would not be Machmas Tshuva. Therefore, Vechazek Hashem is Leiparo. Hashem hardens his heart so that he's now back to a point of Bechira. Meaning there was an overwhelming show of Hashem's might that so much pushed him into the ground that it was impossible. He lost his Bechira to choose him. He couldn't say, I resist Hashem. Hashem hardens his heart to bring him back to a midpoint where now he's physically strong enough, emotionally strong enough to resist. He now has Bechira again. At which point he says, I'm not letting them go. And as the way Hashem said to Moshe, it was not going to happen. So now we start on the next Makkah. We're now up to Borod. Now, Moshe Hashkim Baboka, you get up in the morning, Mitzasev and Paro appear in front of Paro. Even so, as Hashem, the God of Jews, said, Shalach Esamivayavduni, send my nation out and let them serve me. Now, already, this Makkah, and Rashi explains to us that the Makkah of Barad was actually more severe than all the other Makkahs. The first nine Makkahs all existed to show Hashem's Shlita. Makkah's Bechorus alone was a punishment. But these are all to show Hashem's shlita, Hashem's control. And in fact, here's we see, here's where we say the pasuk. The pasuk says, "Why have I kept you alive? Why did I keep you power alive so that I should show my strength?" Hashem says, so that the Jews should know, the people should know, what I'm going, who I am, and what I am. And in fact, Hashem tells Moshe to warn Paro about the makas barad. In Makas Barad, though, Hashem tells Moshe to warn Paro to bring in all of the animals. Now, Barad, you have to understand what Barad is. If you've ever seen, there are occasional hailstorms in the United States of America. Typically, the hailstorms involve little, cute, little hailstones. So if you're driving, sometimes in the summer, and all of a sudden you hear tinkle, 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 and you turn down the stereo because you want to hear the cute sound of the tinkle, tinkle as the hail gently hits the roof of your car. It's very cute. Occasionally, there are hailstones that are the size of golf balls. A man told me he was once in a parking lot after such a hailstone storm, and he saw the hoods of all the cars look like someone came by with a bullpen hammer and just smashed them all in because when you have a golf ball sized piece of ice falling thousands of feet it smashes down and it took all the cars were dented all over from this. Borod in Mitzrayim was not the size of golf balls it was a huge mega size pieces of ice blocks of ice that killed all animals standing in the field. Now keep in mind Betsy the cow may weigh 1500 pounds if you've ever seen a cow, if you try your hardest, tighten your fist and smash a cow full force, it won't even know you're there. They have to make special bull whips to hit the cow so that when you swish and whip it, it at least knows it's aware that you're present. Leather on your shoes, that's the cow's hide. It's very difficult to kill a 1,500 pound animal. Every single bucker, every sheep, every cattle, every chamar, every horse, every cow that was in the field died because these powerful, huge, softball-sized clumps of ice smashed down were just thundering down. We're also aware that the Pesach says that there's going to be Eish Mislakachas there'll be a fire within the ice. Now Rashi asks the famous Kasha that we know that water and fire are enemies. Either the water will extinguish the ice or the, I'm sorry, the water will extinguish the fire, or the fire will melt the ice. Water and fire cannot coexist. So Rashi asks Akasha, and Rashi says, also Shalom, they made peace, they made peace. 
you have to appreciate what a nace we're dealing with over here. If you have a block of ice, and the idea of the maki is that this huge block of ice falls down, when it hits the ground, it breaks open, and the fire inside now b- burns the rest in the field, it's physically impossible. Fire cannot exist inside a block of ice. Yet not only did it exist, but the Chizkuni says a very interesting point. He says that normally, at least I understand the fire and the ice can coexist, but what was especially unique was the ice was as cold as can be, and the fire was as hot as can be, meaning it was freezing cold. When this hail was smashing down, it would turn the leaves that it hit and the area hit into ice itself because it's a, it's a hailstorm, it's freezing. And as soon as it was freezing, the fire came and burnt it in that state, which is obviously also physically impossible. But in fact, Moshe warns that this is going to happen, and an entire hailstorm begins raining on Mitzrayim, smashing down. There was not a tree left standing in the field. Anything that was solid, anything that was strong, was wiped out, and the land of Mitzrayim was laid desolate. Of course, all this was happening in Mitzrayim, but if you stepped over the border into Goshen, nice sunny day. Now, I often imagine what it would be like to be a Jew. Imagine for a minute, you're a Jew in Eretz Goshen, and you're standing on the border. Nice sunny day, catching this kind of suntan, I'm going to move my part away so I get to all the Every spot tan nicely, and you see Eretz Mitzrayim. Hashem says, "I'm going to Lamachar tomorrow." Says the Medrash that Moshe made a, took his staff and made a line on the wall. When the sun comes to this point tomorrow, Barad would happen. And at that point, when the sun hit that point, hailstones start smashing. Now you're again, you're a Jew in, in Goshen. You're sitting there, nice sunny, and you're watching these hailstones, pop, 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 and a fire breaking out and the fire burning. It was niflos habori that were very difficult for a human being to imagine or understand the extent of Hashem's demonstrating His control over nature. And of course, we would assume that the Mitzrim would at this point surely have done tshuva, but in fact, they didn't. And once Paro begged Moshe tell Hashem to stop it, it's very interesting that what Paro asked for, Paro didn't ask first to stop the Barod. First, Paro says to Moshe, stop the kolos. Because what, if you don't read carefully, you don't know, but the manager explains to us that there was huge thunder. Not only were there these hailstorms, but additionally there was snow, and there was gophrys, which is some type of sulfur. There was t- terrible things happening, but worse than all of it, apparently, were these thunderous sounds of throughout Mitzrayim. The first thing the power says is, stop the colo, stop the noise. Seven days, I can't sleep, I can't, exa- I, I can't live with this. In fact, he says, I'm going to let the men go, not, to, not all the people, yes, the men, yes, Hashem, Moshe says, fine, at which point the Barad stops, and again, by Chazik Paro, and in fact, Paro does not let the Jewish nation go. The next Maka, which again is to show Hashem's control, is Arbe. Now, Arbe <coughs> may not sound as terrible as the other Makas, but the Pasuk is very clear in describing what Arbe is going to be. There's going to be locusts, which are, if you ever ask a farmer, if you have a farmer who had a farm and there, occasionally there are the locust swarms, it basically darkens the sky. It's an entire swarm of millions of these type of insects and they cl- fly so close together that they block the sun. The only thing is, on Mitzrayim, the locusts flew to the extent that they covered the entire land of Mitzrayim. There was no sun. It was like a black cloud covering Mitzrayim and they landed together as one and ate every last piece of vegetation left in the field. After Arbe, 
there was nothing left. Barad had destroyed all the trees. All the animals left in the field were dead. Any possible last part of vegetation or greenery left in the fields was now eaten by the Arba and the land of Mitzrayim was desolate. The wealthiest, most powerful nation in the world at the time was now laid as a desolate wasteland and everyone was clearly able to see that when you fight against Hashem, when you start with Hashem, the punishment is severe and extraordinary and yet, despite this, not only didn't the midstream do tshuva, Paro did not let the Jewish people go for another Makkah and another one after that. The last part of Makkah's Arba was the fact that the Pasuk says that not one Arba was left in Mitzrayim. The Pasuk says, Not a single locust was left in Mitzrayim. And Rashi brings down the Medrash that basically at that time people ate locusts. It was considered a delicacy. They would salt it, pickle it. And during this mock of Arba, during the seven days that the locusts were there, the Mitzrayim had some sense of relief by the fact that there were these delicacies easily located and apparently some of them went through the process of pickling and salting and putting away a nase betokenes that when the when Hashem brought the ruach to sweep out the Arab and not only did all of the swarms of locusts pass away, but every single locust that had come through this mock, including the ones they put in the jars and the barrels that they hid away, were also swept away with this with this maka. At this point it's very clear that Hashem is telling them that this is serious and at this point still they're unwilling to to change Paro, and apparently the Mitzrayim as well were unwilling to go w- along with this. So, Vayom Hashem Moshe. now we begin with the mock of Hoshech. Hashem says, Moshe, Teyad Chal Shemayim, place your staff on the Shemayim, Vayichoshech Al Eretz Mitzrayim, there'll be darkness on Mitzrayim, Vayamesh Hoshech, and it will increase. The word Yamesh is difficult to translate. It's a machlokas, what Yamesh Hoshech means, it either means it will accept darkness, or there'll be extra darkness. The point is, this is the beginning of Makas Choshech. Now, the Rishonim explained to us, the Sfuno and the Rabban explained to us, that this darkness was very distinct from a typical type of darkness. Normally, darkness means the lack of light. For instance, if I shut off all the lights in this room, assuming that there's no outside light coming in, there'll be an absence of light, hence there'll be darkness. That was not Makas Choshech. Makas Choshech was not an absence of light, there was plenty of light. Haraya the Jewish people were able to see quite clearly. The problem was that the air, which is normally capable of allowing light to pass, lost that capacity, meaning it no longer allowed the transmission of light. Air has no substance to block light. It's transparent. The light travels directly through it. However, (coughs) Hashem let the light have a new, the air have a different element. The Ramban says a sort of a, ah, something thick came down. The Sforno learns that just that's normally a property of light that prevents it. In any case, the air did not allow the light to pass through it so that there was darkness for the mystery. In fact, Moshe put his hand on the Shemayim. There was darkness, a deep darkness in Eretz Yisrael for three days. No man saw his brother. And no man got up in three days. But for all of the Jewish people, there was light in their dwelling place. Now, the Makkah had two separate parts to it. The first three days and the second three days. 
during the first three days, no man saw his brother. Now, it was a much deeper darkness than a typical darkness during the day. Rashi tells us that at night it got even more deeply dark. Again, the thickness of the air apparently became more significant and no light was able to pass. That was the first three days. However, the next three days, the darkness changed to the extent that no man could move. The Pulse says clearly no man could move. And the measures explain to us during the last three days, if a man was sitting, he was glued to a seat. If he was standing, he was glued standing up. Wherever he was is where he remained. Now I remember for many years when I first went Chumash, I had the cash. I couldn't understand what does it mean it's so dark that you can't sit down. Let's say you're standing up. So you're standing up, very nice. It's dark, it's pitch black, it's so, so black. So find the floor, sit down. Not only that, the measure says even more. The measure says, no matter where a man was, that's where he remained glued. If a man was walking up a ladder with one foot up, he remained glued in that posture for the last three days of the Makkah. So 72 hours, he couldn't budge. So again, for many years, I had a kasha. What's pshat? Why? Just put your leg down. So if you look carefully in the Ramban, it's clear that there was another dimension to the darkness, and that was another thickening to the air. The air got a proportion, got a, a new dimension of thickness to the extent that you physically couldn't move. Normally the air doesn't block my arm, but it became so thick that it did. If you would imagine that you were in a pool, imagine that you're in a pool and someone pours in bags and bags and bags of clear jello. And then all of a sudden the pool, which was once warm and nice and comfortable, they turn off the heat and it starts getting colder and colder at one at certain point the jello actually gels and now you're uh, you can't move the air was so thick that you couldn't move your arm you couldn't move your leg you couldn't budge there was a thickness to the air that would not allow motion now I remember when I was explaining this to my son when he was younger Shalmai asked me Akasha if so how the Mitzrayim breathe and if you think about it it's not a small kasha at all because if you can't move, if you're stuck, see, I guess you can't even, how, how do you even move your diaphragm up and down? Maybe there was a little bit of room, but even if that's true, when you take this thick substance into your lungs, how does your body absorb it or not absorb it? You have to, your body has to take the 20% oxygen out of the air if now there's thick stuff. So I don't know the answer, I guess, if Hashem is able to change the air into thick substance, it can somehow allow the, the breathing process to continue. But the point is, for three days they remained in this mode without budging. What was unique about this Makkah was the fact that to every Jew, there was Arbim there was light in Eretz Goshen. Additionally, there was light for the Jews wherever they went. Now, there were two reasons why in particular we're told that Hashem brought the Makkah of Choshech. One reason was because Hashem was trying to hide something from the Nitzrim. And that was, as Rashi tells us, that there were Jews, and we're not, it's not clear how many, but there were Jews in Mitzrayim who had it good. They were wealthy, and they were not enslaved, and a small percentage of the Jews were actually in power and didn't want to leave Mitzrayim. They, had became, they were ingratiated to the king, and they were in power, and they didn't want to leave and they had reached the point that we were Rishoyim and Hashem wanted to kill them. However, Hashem didn't want it to be obvious and noticeable that there were Jews dying. So Hashem brought Makas Choshech. During that time, those Rishoyim amongst the Jewish people who were not going to leave, who wouldn't have left, were killed out. They were buried and no mystery saw it. That was one reason brought down. 
Rashi brings another reason why is it that Makas Choshech was brought was because Hashem promised Avram many years earlier that the Jewish nation they'll be slaves they'll be in Mitzrayim but when they leave they'll leave with great wealth the problem is it was difficult for the Jewish people when they're going to leave in a sudden urgency it's difficult for them to take out the treasures of Mitzrayim so Hashem told Moshe to tell the Jewish nation during the Mak of Choshech the Jews are to go around to the Mitzrayim houses and inspect, search find where they hide the gold, find where they hide the diamonds, the precious gems, etc. So that when they are going to leave Mitzrayim, they'll come to their Egyptian neighbors and they'll say, could we borrow some gold, some diamonds? The Mitzrayim might say the words, well, we don't have any, to which they'll do well, so would say, well, in that drawer over there, in your third bedroom, there was a diamond necklace, etc. And in fact, the Medrash tells us that during Makas Choshech, during the pitch black, the Jews walked around the Mitzri houses and for them it was broad daylight. And if you can imagine, sometimes I like to be Mitzayah a little bit. In other words, imagine you're a Mitzri and it's pitch black, black of black, and you're there. It's 48 hours where you can't move, you can't budge, and there's nothing you can do. And all of a sudden you hear... Who is that? Who is that? Who is that? Who is that? Oh, no problem, Muhammad. It's me, Yitzchak. What do you want? No problem, Muhammad. I'm just going to look around a little bit. And Muhammad's standing when he has the drawers opening, the doors closing, the steps up. What are you doing? What are you? There's nothing Muhammad can do. He's glued to the spot. And the Jews looking around. Oh, oh, oh Muhammad. Who are you? I'm not insane. Drawers opening, drawers closing. And Muhammad is there. Now, gentlemen, you have to understand the level of the nace is impossible to imagine. Not only is it black, Muhammad can't move, and the Jew walks through the house with total clarity of sight, with ease of movement, and he sees Muhammad. He's watching Muhammad, who's standing there. Imagine he's on the ladder. Muhammad's got one leg up, one leg down, and he's nailed to the spot. And Yitzhak looks at him and goes, What is your problem? Put your foot down, man. Just, just step down. And imagine that Yitzhak puts his arm on Muhammad. What's going on? It's crazy. Look, it doesn't move. It just doesn't move. But to Yitzhak, it's broad daylight. There's nothing there. There's no substance in the air. It's just transparent, light stuff. But yet Muhammad is blind as a bat and can't move. It's mamish, a naze, a pillar that's impossible to imagine. What Hashem was showing was that every molecule of air is transparent and easily pass through because Hashem decrees it to be. The minute Hashem says otherwise, that very same molecule of air that to the Jew is transparent and easily pushed aside to the mystery is solid like jello and blinds them like a bat. And again, the, the Jews live through this, the mystery through, through seven days, first Choshech and then the doubling of Choshech. And again, whilst this is a simon for us for generations, apparently the mystery did not totally do tshuva. And the Jewish people went through the entire time of Makas Choshech together with the Mitzrim, and still Paro did not relent. Not only didn't he relent, the Pasuk tells us that there was a quick debate between Moshe and Paro. Paro, after the Makah ends, Paro says, Fine, go, get out of here, but keep the behemoths here. Moshe says, We're not keeping the behemoths by Yechazek, Hashem is like Paro, Hashem hardened Paro's heart. And Paro would not send them. Now comes the last of the Makkas. 
Now, up until now, each of the first nine makas were brought specifically to show the Jewish nation and the Mitzvah as well that Hashem is the creator, the manhig, the one who runs the world, and the one who's mahava, the one who keeps the world in existence. The first nine makas were osos, they were simonim, they were signs to show the Jewish people and the Mitzvah as well that there is a creator to the world. It's only the tenth maka. The tenth maka, which is not a os, the maka's bechorus was not brought as a sign. The maka's bechorus is the only maka that was brought as a punishment. This was supposed to be a mida connected mida punishment to what the Egyptians did during the 210 years of slavery. And in fact, Moshe comes, Vayom Hashem, Moshe Hashem says to Moshe, while Moshe is in the house of Paro, this is the one nevuah, Moshe went to Paro to tell him, let my people go after Choshech. And there Moshe was given the Nevu where Hashem said, I'm going to bring Nega Achas Abi Al Paro Mitzrayim, I'll bring one final affliction on Paro Mitzrayim. Afterwards, he will send you out Keshal Chakala, he'll send you out Garish Garish, he'll throw you out. He will throw you out of his land. And, but before you do this, remember, please tell the people that they should go around and ask before they leave, make sure that you tell the people that they should go around and borrow. Ask the Mitzvah to borrow their great wealth, their jewels, their kleset, their klichesev, their klizov, etc. Now it's a very interesting aside. Rashi tells us that Hashem said to Moshe, B'derech na, please, please speak in the ears of the nation, meaning convince them to borrow the golden vessels, coins, etc. of the Egyptians. Apparently, the Jews were afraid to do it. Now the reason why they were afraid to do it some of the Rishonim say is very simple. When they're going to despoil Mitzrayim, now the Jews left with all of the wealth of Mitzrayim. The Jews in the Midbar were phenomenally wealthy. They had wealth that was beyond description. The Gemara describes some of the wealth, but apparently it was extraordinary. Mitzrayim was a very, very wealthy country. At the very end, after the final Makas Bechorus, Hashem puts a chain, puts a special chesed in the eyes of Mitzrayim for the Jews, and they literally give up their wealth, their gold, their precious jewels, their, whatever they had they gave. The Jews left with Berachush Gadol with extraordinary wealth. The Jews were afraid that if in fact we ask Mitzrayim, and they give us their jewels, their great wealth, what's going to happen? They're going to have Chavrat, and they're going to chase us down which in fact was part of the way that Paro eventually convinced the Mitzrim to chase down the Jews. Paro, after they finally, if they were out in the Midbar for three days, Paro says to his people, let's go. And his people said, we're not going nowhere. Paro said, come on, I'll go first. They said, we're still not going. Don't you understand, says Paro, they took our wealth, they took our Rechush Gadol, they took our, come, let's get back our property. Apparently, that was a winning taina. That was something that actually convinced the people to in fact follow Paro into the Midbar. The Jews at the time were afraid. They were afraid if we take all the wealth, the Egyptians are going to chase us down. Therefore Hashem says, speak, please speak, beg them, tell them, implore that they take the wealth. And listen to what Rashi says, because I'm afraid, what if they don't take the wealth? What do you mean they don't take the wealth? They offer them, they don't take it. No, listen to the problem. So that Sadiq Avram won't say, Avram might say, You promised me that they were going to be slaves, that part you fulfilled. They were slaves, that in good measure you fulfilled. But then you promised that that you didn't fulfill. Hashem says, I'm afraid that my Sadiq Avram will have a taina against me. 
Now, it may not be exactly our topic now, but it's important to understand that this is one of the midos that Hashem works with. In other words, obviously, Hashem doesn't have to be afraid for, for Avram. Hashem doesn't have to be afraid that there's injustice here. Hashem offered him the opportunity. He offered him Gadol. There was no in, in, inappropriate behavior over here. But Hashem, with tremendous anova kaviyachol, is that's the way he's knowing. His Avram, my beloved, I promised him, and there'll be a tiny somehow. I don't want that to be. So he tells Moshe, tell the Jewish people, please beg them to take out Berchosh Gadol. In any case, in this very short time span, while Moshe is standing in front of Paro, he's given this nevuah, and Moshe says to Paro as follows, Hashem, so says, has Hashem said, approximately midnight on a Yotzei B'toch Mitzrayim, I'm going to go out in Mitzrayim. Now we're all familiar with the fact that Moshe was Meshana, Moshe changed from the words that Hashem said to him. Hashem said to Moshe, I will kill out the Egyptian firstborn directly and immediately at the stroke of twelve. Yet Moshe changed it. He changed the expression to be approximately, and it's very interesting to note why. So Rashi brings down the Medrash that he was afraid that the astrologers were not so accurate in their timekeeping. And in fact, at the stroke of Chatzos, exactly at the point every Mitzri would die, every Mitzri Bukhar would die, the astrologers would see it as 12.05, they'd say, oh, Moshe Badai, Moshe's a liar, and then they would be, it would come out at Lecholopachos Achil Hashem, might even look like Moshe's made up the whole thing, etc., and therefore Moshe changed. Now again, this is another illustration of a point, how obstinate a person can be in their own opinion. The astrologers were unlikely, it was unlikely that the astrologers were super accurate. It was the atomic clock had not been invented for some maybe uh, 3,300 years later. So, yet, there they were. They were approximate in their time, but even though they had lived through nine makas already, they would have claimed that Moshe is lying because it looked to them like it walked by five minutes, and apparently they would have undone the entire belief in the whole rest of the Yisiyas Mitzrayim, and it would have been a Hashem. So, in fact, Moshe says, Kachatso Salayla, approximately midnight, I'm going to go out in Mitzrayim, or Meis Kol Every Bukhar will die. From the Bukhar of Paro who sits on the throne, our Bukhar Shifcha, till the Bukhar of the slave, Additionally, every Bukhar Behema, every Behema firstborn will also die. You might wonder where are these Behemas? After all, didn't they all die in Dever and in Barad? So there is a Machlokas amongst the Rishonim. Some Rishonim learn simply that even in Dever as well, the only animals that died were the animals in the fields. In Barad especially, it's clear it was only animals in the fields, so the Mitzrayim had some animals left. In any case, there'll be a large cry in Eretz Mitzrayim, as it, like that never was, there'll never be one like that again. The entire Jewish nation, no tongue will bark, will not wave its tongue. To man, to behema, lamantedun, in order that they know Hashem knows the separation between Mitzrayim and between Yisrael. Now, let's understand this maka, what's going on and what's going to happen, and in fact what does happen. Moshe is standing in the house of Paro and he's warning this is what's going to occur. There's going to be a makas behoros. Moshe came for each maka for three weeks and warned. He said it then. Now it's not clear because here it appears that Moshe never appeared in front of Paro again. 
But this warning was well known, whether it was only said one time or was said for three weeks. It was a time period during which the word was spread that in fact all the Bechors in Mitzrayim are going to die. Now you should know that Moshe's word was taken very seriously. At the end of this Makkah, the Pasuk says, Ish Moshe Godol, the man Moshe was very great in Mitzrayim. Every word he said, every iota, exactly as he said it, has been fulfilled for nine separate Makkahs, and now he says it. This time, in fact, his word was believed. The Bechoros, the firstborn, listened to him, and in fact, mounted a coup against Paro. There was an armed rebellion. They came to Paro and said, let them go. Every time the man says something, it has happened exactly as he said it. He's now said that every Bukhar is going to die. Paro, you're also a Bukhar. Your firstborn is a Bukhar. We and you together are going to die out. Let them go. And apparently, Paro, even at this point, refused. And there was a rebellion. There was a civil revolt, there was a civil war, where the Bechoros rose up, Paro called his guards, and apparently there was a fight, there were many killed amongst the Egyptians. This was not a simple thing. In fact, we say, in a number of different places, we say, Hashem, you hit the Mitzrayim with the Bechoros, that the Bechoros themselves killed amongst the Mitzrayim. Meaning, not just were the Bechoros killed during the Makkah, but the Bechoros killed the Mitzrayim, because again, there was this armed revolution. In any case, power was victorious. Power put down the rebellion, and as hard to understand as it is, he stayed in that position, knowing full well that this Makkah was about to be brought. And in fact, on the appointed day, exactly at the time, Mamish Bachatzos Halayla, every Bechor in Mitzrayim died. Now, that alone would be spectacular. If every single Bechor in Mitzrayim were to drop dead at the stroke of midnight on cue, that would be a fantastic nace. Just the fact that A, human beings died, B, that in every house, no matter who was there, only the Bechor died. Now, in some houses, it might be very simple, it's just one son. But what if you had a house where there were five sons, and as a matter of fact, the oldest son was short and scrawny, and the one under him was tall and big, Dafka, specifically and only, the Bechor died. What if you had a house where there was no Bechor? No Bechor in this house. So Rashi, the Pasuk says, There was no house that didn't have a death. So the Gemara tells us that if there was no Bechor, then the eldest in the house died. And in fact, the Medrash tells us some interesting things happened. There were some houses in the mystery times, there were nuclear families, meaning families stayed together number of generations. So in one house, you might have the uncles and the aunts and the grandparents, etc. So imagine one house with his Uncle Bob and Uncle, and Uncle Fred. Uncle Bob 78 and Uncle Fred is 80. Now, they both look pretty old to me. They're the oldest. There's no Bukhar in that house. It happens to be the one who was 80 dies. Now, who's Mavchin? Who knows the difference? Who knew whether it was a Bukhar or not a Bukhar? Who knew it was 80 or 78? Who was counting? Not only that, if in fact the Bukhar, there was a Bukhar to the house and it had died, so Dasakinim tells us that the, they used to put up on their mantelpiece, they used to put up a sort of a memorial to the Bukhar. The Akrovim would dig up the bones, right at the point of the Makkah, the various weasels went to the cemetery, brought back the bones, and that mantle, from the mantelpiece, that memorial piece would fall down and break, and the parents saw the bones of their Bukhar right there brought to them. 
I mean, these are nisim that are just impossible, almost impossible to imagine. And again, you'd assume that these people would become total, complete balichuva. They'd be so moved by the awesomeness, the the incredible watch the providence, meaning the amount that Hashem watches, the involvement of Hashem in their life, and the power of Hashem. And you'd assume, at this point, that every mitzri would have become a Baal Tshuva Gemura. Not only didn't they, but we'll soon see that they, not long after this, chased down the Bnei Yisrael onto the Yamsuf. But in any case, this was a very powerful message. It was such a powerful message that at this point, in fact, Parok immediately runs out. He should have died. He was saved, and Hashem says, the Pesach tells lady he was saved that it's to be a sign that Hashem is the Melech. There was Dafka, Hashem wanted power around. He comes running out in the middle of the night to chase down Moshe, and he finds Moshe and says, Get out of here, leave! Now you'll note that the Bnei Yisrael was scheduled to leave at night, as the Pesach says, as Paro wanted to kick them out at night, right at Chatzos. However, it wasn't until the next day, it wasn't until the next day that they actually left. Now, just understand the timeline of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim. This is very important. We know, we have something called Shabbos HaGadol. Now, Shabbos HaGadol refers, it's brought down in Tosos and Shabbos, tells us that Shabbos HaGadol was surrounded the following event. Before Makas Bechorus, Hashem told the Bnei Yisrael, take the Seh, take the Gedi or the Seh for the Korban Pesach, shecht it, take the blood, put it on the mashkov, put it on the, on the door posts, and then the mashkis will not come into your house. Meaning, if there's blood on the Pesach, that will protect you, the schus of that mitzvah will protect you, and your Bechor will not die. Now, the only thing is, that typically, a, before one brings a carbon, there's a bedikas mum. You have to make sure that there are no mumim. In fact, what happens in here, we will, every time you take a carbon, it has to sit three days before you shecht it to make sure that there are no mumim in it. Shabbos HaGadol was the day Hashem told when Yisrael, take that seh, tie it to your bedpost, tie the seh, you're going to select one particular sheep or gedi or goat to be your carbon, tie it up and keep it there. Why was it Shabbos Hagadol? Because the Mitzrim worshipped the sheep. They worshipped the lamb. They would come to the Jewish house and they would see one of their gods, one of their avodazores, tied to the foot of the Jewish bed. And they'd say, what is this? The Jews said, well, this is what we're going to shech. In three days we're going to bring a carbon to Hashem. We're shechting this animal. The Mitzrim were kahashineim. Their teeth chattered. They couldn't say anything. It was at this point already, it was so clear and obvious that Hashem was in charge, Hashem was involved, that the Mitzvah were petrified of the Jew. Shabbos HaGadol, because on that Shabbos was the great nace, that the master, the great Egyptian nation, became the slave in the sense that they couldn't speak even to the Jews, they couldn't say anything, their teeth chattered in their mouth, and in fact the Jews tied this bed, tied the sheep, held it by the bedpost until Yudalit. Now, Yud Dalid, which if it's Shabbos, is Yud, on Wednesday, by Chatzos, they shechted the carbon. Wednesday night of that year was the Makas Bechoros, and Thursday, by day, was the actual Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. That particular Pesach was done 
in that way. That Pesach was different than normal Korban Pesach. It was Shechted Wednesday. That night was the Makas Bechorus. The next day, Thursday by day, they left. Why did they leave by day? Paro said at night that Wednesday night, get out, leave Mitzrayim. So Rashi tells us that Moshe said, wait a minute, what are we, Ganovim, what are we, thieves, leaving in the night? We're going to leave Be'etzim Ayom in broad daylight. We're waiting for daylight so every Mitzri can see we're marching out of here. And in fact, the Pasuk tells us at the end of the 430 years, Be'etzim Ayom Yatsu Hashem all of the multitudes of Hashem, the nation of Hashem left Mitzrayim. And this is the Lel Shimurim for us. Now Hashem marches them out into the Midbar. Now you have to understand, here again, there were Nisim upon Nisim upon Nisim. The Jews were surrounded mostly in Eretz Goshen, which was quite a large area, but there were many Jews in various different parts of Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was a large country. We're told the Kalashah, in just a very short moment, they all ended up in Ramses, they all ended up in a, in a central departure point. And keep in mind, we're dealing with a huge throng of people. We're dealing with 600,000 men. You have the women, you have the children. Approximately 3 million people marching out into the Midbar. Taking 3 million people into the Midbar, all they had with them was the matzah that they had baked. The reason why we have matzah now is because they were baking their, their bread. Hashem told them, you're going to go in the Midbar, bake something. The Midbar said, get out of here. They wouldn't let them finish the baking. So they left with their with the Makalim Be'edim, they had their sticks in their hands, they had their, around them, they had their, on their shirts, they put in some of the matzah, some unbaked, some baked, they later baked it right before they left, and that's how they walked out into the Midbar in the state. No water, no food, obviously no way of getting where they're going, but they went, Be'emuna, Be'tachon Hashem, they marched out. The Pasuk opens up in Perik Yudgimel, that when Hashem Nahag, when Hashem brought the Jewish people into the Midbar, Hashem brought them derech Eretz Plishtim. Hashem brought them not in a direct way, because Hashem did not want to take them directly into Eretz Yisrael. Hashem was afraid that they would see Muhammad, they would be afraid, and therefore Hashem brought them in a, what's called in the puzzle, called a crooked manner. Now, they marched out for three days untouched. Hamushim Allah B'nai Yisrael, the B'nai Yisrael left armed, the simple shot, and that's how they marched for three days. After three days, the word comes back to Paro that the Jewish nation have turned wrong. Meaning, the direct path which they should have taken, they didn't take. Paro sent out messengers. He sent out spies to follow the Jewish nation. He found that they were turning wrong. It looked like they were lost. Those messengers came back and Paro chased them down. Sus He brought his nation with him. He brought his warriors, etc. And he chased down and they met on the Yam on the seventh day. Now, actually, they met at night. Now, you have to imagine the picture of what's going on here. When the Jewish nation go into Mitzrayim, they are a ragtag people. When they leave Mitzrayim, a huge nation. When you leave as a huge nation going into the Midbar, you can't just walk out. They were led by Anne Kovod. Now, we're very familiar with many of the Midrashim, but let's just discuss a few obvious ones. The Midbar is an unkempt area. I mean, it's overgrown, parts are, parts are totally barren, sand, parts have cactus, parts have various insects, rodents, and various things to block the way. The Anneya covered, which were these powerful pillars of cloud, led the way. In front of the Kalei was a very powerful pillar. On the sides were these powerful pillars of cloud. Behind them, above them, 
protecting them and guiding them out into the Midbar. One Anan would clear the way, so instead of it being rough and jaggedy, the sand was smooth and everything was cleared. The other Anan would protect them from the various, from the heat, from the sun. It was a beautiful, climate-controlled, temperate environment while they traveled through the Midbar. Again, typically the Midbar is hot. It's a desert climate. It's 120, 130 degrees, whatever it may be. It's quite uncomfortable. They were traveling in extraordinary comfort, protected from the elements by the Anunim. Additionally, there was an Anan Eish in front of them. There was one Anan, there was one cloud that was a pillar of cloud that was burning fire that lit up the night as if it were day. The Jewish nation traveled beyond Uvalila. How they travel at night? Because one of the Anan was a brilliant light. Now, if you ever try to shine a candle, a flashlight, a powerful searchlight, you'll see it goes for a little distance, but that's it. To light up the night as if it's day, you need a huge, powerful... We don't have, we don't have such searchlights. We don't have such powerful lights. The Anan Eish was a Anan, which means it was a cloud, but it was a cloud that literally lit up everything in front of it. And you could see, you walked in the Midbar, and it was clear as day. You could see right in front of you. Now this is obviously a nace, lamala, lamala, midera, difficult to even be masik, to even comprehend the extent of nace. And that's how they march out, days three, days four, five, six. By day, night of six, they come, the, come to the Yamsuf, and they see behind them the Mitzrim are chasing them down. The Mitzrim are chasing them, and they're chasing them. Not only are the Mitzri soldiers chasing them, but the Mitzri God. Now, apparently, they were able to see things that we normal mortal men are not able to see. They were able to see each nation has a God, has a Malach, that's its power. They were able to see Mitzrayim, no say Achareim, the, the Malach of Mitzrayim chasing after them, and they were filled with fear because it was quite a frightening situation. These had been their masters for so many years. These had been the powerful people, and they saw the Mitzrayim, the God, the Malach of Mitzrayim chasing them, and they were filled with fear. They had their back against the Yam. The Medrash tells us they couldn't even slip to the side. They would have gone to the left, but Hashem brought Dubim, Varayas, various animals to keep them penned in so that they couldn't even escape. The reason is that Hashem was waiting for them to be mispalo, and... In fact, when they were mispalo, when the Chayesol reached up and down into Hashem, Hashem split the Yam. Now the splitting of the Yam is obviously the greatest of all the miracles. Beyond any single nace, <coughs> beyond any of the makas, beyond anything we've described up to now, Kriyash Yamsuf was overpowers and overshadows these tremendously. It is difficult to even try to do justice to Kriyas Yamsuf, a person could spend their life and begin to understand the Nisim upon Nisim upon Nisim. And all I want to do is spend a few minutes illustrating some of the more obvious and overt, clear miracles of the Kriyas Yamsuf, just to illustrate just a tiny bit. The Ramban, in explaining the Kriyas Yamsuf, tells us that actually it's split in a very different manner than you normally would assume. Samsov did not begin in a sudden, instantaneous splitting of the sea. As a matter of fact, the Ramban says it really began at night. When the Klyasrol get to that Yamsuf, the Mitzrayim chases them down, the Anan Eish that was in front of the Klyasrol, leading them always, 
transferred, and Malach came and brought that Anan all the way from the front way to the back, so that now that became the wall separating the Mitzrim from the Jews. Now again, one of those things that's difficult for us to understand is that the Mitzrim didn't wake up at that point and say, whoa, wait a minute, there's a fire, there's a pillar of fire here that's blocking our way. Maybe, maybe there's a God in the world, maybe something's going on. Not only didn't they take that message, Paro tries to crash into it. Apparently it wasn't hot. It was an Anan. Anan means it's some type of vapor formation. It was, not, it was brilliantly bright, but it wasn't hot. So they tried, they mounted the horses, and they chased into it to smash through, but the horses got stopped. Then, Paro didn't stop and say, well, maybe there's a God in the world. They took their archers, and they began shooting arrows. The problem is, the Anan stopped the arrows. Then they took fire arrows. They used to put sulfur on the tip of the arrow, and they would light it on fire and shoot it. This was a typical war technique. They shot that, the Anan caught it. So they stood there the entire night, being blocked by this pillar of cloud, trying to push against it. The Mitzvah stood on the other side, the Mitzvah on one side, and that position they stood all night. The Ramban said that towards that point, a eastern wind began blowing. A wind started coming from the east and started sweeping across the Yamsuf. Now, if you can imagine an expanse of ocean, a large, large, huge expanse as far as the eye could see, if you were looking out onto it, you would see slowly, as the wind swept, it looked like there were sort of almost little kind of etches being drawn into the ocean. And these etches started getting a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And as the wind picked up speed, the etches got deeper. And as the night progressed, the wind picked up more power. And you could start seeing little separations, a little separation in the ocean directly straight across. You could see it starting to etch a line. It got deeper and deeper and wider and wider. And in fact, 12 separate compartments, 12 separate large, wide passageways were cut through the yam. Slowly, slowly, until at the very end of the night, towards morning, you could literally see straight through deep passages all the way into the yam. Says the Ramban, why is it that this was done? Why did Hashem split it, Beruach Kadim, with an eastern wind? We'll see soon, in a minute, why it was. But before we do that, let's understand what it was like for Bnei Yisrael. At this point, they see the Anan Ish stopping the Mitzrayim. They're looking out at the sea and they see these 12 wide passages. Remember, we're dealing with millions of people. We can't have, each shavit is going to go into its own compartment, but each shavit needs a very wide passage. Each of these passageways was very wide, and the ground, the ocean bed, which normally is mushy and full of muck and mire, became smoothed out and hard. And in fact, at the right moment, Hashem says to Moshe, why are you davening to me? The Christ already davened. The Amuna that they trusted in me is sufficient. Let them go. And in fact, they traveled into, they walked into the Yamsuf. Now when they walked into the Yamsuf, what they saw were Nisim upon Nisim. And it's Kedai to read the Medrash to study what exactly happened. But each Shevet, as they're walking through their own path, had a very comfortable walk through. They walked into the, literally into the ocean bed, which now was firm and smooth. And when they looked to the left or to the right, they didn't see 
the murk and mire of water, and normally water has an opacity level, it's a, you can only see for a certain distance, whatever it may be, 20 feet, 30 feet, 100 feet, this now, the water, even though it was ocean water, became clear as glass, because Hashem was afraid. If Shevet Dan is going to walk through their path, and Shevet ladies further down, Shevet Dan might think that Shevet Levi died. Who knows what happened to them? So Hashem arranged it that each Shevet could look, you could look through each section of the Yam to see the next Shevet, look through there, the next Shevet was clear as glass. So that if you were on one end, if Reuven was on one end, he could see all the way down, Shevet after Shevet, through all the Shevet in the entire width, you were able to see through. And again, imagine that the Jewish people are walking through, and the ocean begins to get deep. Keep in mind, when the ocean's shallow, you go on the beach, it's a couple of, you know, comes up to your knees, it's cute, to your hip. In the center of the ocean, the ocean can be hundreds upon hundreds of feet deep. I don't know exactly, I've spent a lot of time trying to find exactly the point of Yamsa where they crossed. I, I've never been able to find clearly, but there's no question that it was a very, very deep part. It was an ocean, at least hundreds of feet deep. Which means if the Jewish people are there in the center of the Yam, they look up at a mountain high wall. The wall stretches up 50 feet, 100 feet, hundreds of feet high because it's the entire ocean and it stretches way, way up. A clear, strong, solid wall from ocean bottom all the way to top. And we're all familiar with the various Nisim about being able to drink fresh water in the salt water and almonds, etc. The point is though that every Jew saw miracles of unparalleled proportion. And in that stage, they walked through the Yam, they continued out, and when the Jews were about midpoint, at that point the Anan Eish, which was behind, stopping the Mitzrayim, lifted. And what did the Mitzrayim do at that point? They charged in, following in the Jews into the Yam. Now at this point, you have to understand that we're really dealing with behavior that becomes difficult to bring into rational, sane understanding. We're dealing with people who are doing things that are beyond our capacity to, to relate to because there are miracles here that are beyond description. In any case, they start chasing down and again, initially when they go in, their wheels travel well, everything is proceeding, the Jews see the mission coming, they run quicker. When the last of the Jews left on the other side of the Yam, so actually exited the Yam, at that point the nice smooth bed that was easy to walk on became muck and mire again. And now the susim, the horses, their hooves started getting stuck in the muck and the mire. Their wheels started getting embedded. And at that point, when every last mitri was in the yam, they were about midpoint of the yam, then the ananesh came back and dried up the muck and mire so that the susim's horse, the horse hooves were held fast. The chariot wheels were stuck because the mud had turned to deep clay and they were stuck midpoint in the midbar, in that yam. Now if you can imagine this grand moment, the Bnei Yisrael are on the other side looking into those passageways and they see their enemies, they see their masters. And the wall, the ocean wall is from floor to ceiling hundreds of feet tall and the mitri smack in the middle. And at that point, Hashem said it's over and the wall came crashing down the huge ocean, billions upon billions upon billions of gallons smashed down. One of the greatest nisim of Yisius and Shrayim is that there were three expressions used to describe the death of the Mitzrayim. They were killed, Kekash, Yochlemo Kekash, Yardubim Solos Kamo Evan, they went into the depths Kamo Evan, 
and they also the expression is they drowned like lead in powerful waters in Ajashi we say these expressions Rashi explains us why the three expressions that they were like kash, like straw like rock and like lead because there were three punishments meted out to the mystery. if a mystery was just an okay kind of guy he didn't really beat Jews too much you know he had a sport a little bit but you know he kind of had some Rachmanus then he died like a piece of straw he was killed if you've ever gone to Niagara Falls and you see 200,000 cubic feet of water a second smashing down if you stand behind the falls the power is just so it's breathtaking we're dealing with many many times more the amount of water the force coming down he was killed instantly he was ex- extinguished just billions of gallons, gallons smashing down he was broken if he was a kind of mystery who was not such a kosher guy, he enjoyed giving the Jew a little bit of tzaras, and he enjoyed whipping, then he died like a stone. A stone means he was thrown up a little bit, thrown down a little bit, he was allowed, he was given the strength, the energy to tolerate some of the pain, he was paid back. If in fact he was a particularly wicked Jew, then it was like lead, he was mamish, bounced around, destroyed, back and forth, back and forth, kept alive, but kept in that state where he was smashed back and forth. At the very end of Kriyas Yamsuf, their entire the entire bodies, all of the bodies of the Mitzrayim were washed up ashore, so that the Jews could see their masters dead, so that they could finally feel that they were free. Now, one of the most important points to understand about Kriyas Yamsuf is the fact that the Egyptians actually followed the Jewish people in there. Now, keep in mind that these are the Egyptians who lived through nine, almost months of Makkas. They lived through things that are so obvious and clear that it's difficult to relate to this. And just one very quick illustration. We said earlier that there was Ein Bayes HaShein Shalmeis during the Makkas Bechoros. There was not one house that didn't have a death. The Rashi there tells us that in fact there were some houses that had many deaths. There were some houses that had four or five boys die. And Rashi says, why is this? Because the Mitzri women were promiscuous. They would have affairs. The Pasuk tells us the Bechor, the firstborn of the father, would die. In some houses, they were firstborn from four or five fathers. Why? Because it might be a Mitzri woman. We'll give her name Cleopatra. Cleopatra had an affair 40 years ago with a, a man. That firstborn of that man, who is now 40 years old, was a Bechor. He died. She had an affair five years after that and that was the first from that man that boy died and she had one 25 years 20 years 15 years ago all five of those children died now could you imagine what this woman saw could you understand what this woman with her eyes saw at the time Moshe warned it's going to happen it happens and five of her children dies and she says oh 40 years ago I was alone no one saw no one knew. I had an affair with a guy, Mamish, that was not a witness to the scene, and that child died. Five years later, I was alone in the field with it. No one, no one in the world saw. They couldn't have known. No one knew. I had an affair, and that child from that union died. Five years after that, and five years after that, what this woman saw, clearly, not in a Musa Shmuz, not in a book, not in theoretical, what she saw with her eyes that had occurred in her life, was that 40 years ago Hashem was there watching, recording, 
35 years ago Hashem was there, 30 years ago and 25 years ago, and now she was being paid back. I mean, this woman saw Nisan that were remarkable, and she saw more clearly than anything that Hashem is the creator, and Manhig, the one who runs the world. Yet they chased down the Egyptians, the Egyptians chased down the Jewish people into the Yam. They grabbed together their Rechev Esus and they followed Paro into the Yam. And again, the Ramban says that Hashem split the Yam with an eastern wind. It started at night and started slowly etching out across the ocean. Why, says the Ramban? So that the Egyptians should have what to be tolerated on. They should have what to say that it was caused by something. It's not Hashem, it's the wind. Don't think it's a miracle. The fact that the Yam, the fact that the ocean is splitting now is not a miracle. It's a natural event of Teva. It's nature. They'd have something to hang their hat on. Even though, says Ramban, it doesn't happen. The wind cannot split the sea. And it certainly can't split into Gezorim. And it certainly doesn't split into channels at exactly the time when you're chasing down your enemy. There was enough for them to hang their hat on. And to me, this is probably the single greatest lesson of Kriyas Yamsuf and of Yusias Mitzrayim. Hashem gave us a capacity to believe or to not believe. When Hashem created the human, Hashem created this unbelievable synthesis of man, that man is capable of staring an overt and obvious miracle in the face and denying it as a miracle. And that's a very important lesson to learn, because even though we're not on the Egyptian side, we're on the good guy's side, it's important for us to understand that emuna bitochen are things that are constantly being challenged, constantly need reinforcing. If a person just says, listen, I'm a from Jew, this is who I am, don't worry about it, you are know and understand you're in great jeopardy. Because a human being, by living life, there are constantly, constantly things that assail, that fight against his emuna. And Jew has to constantly be machazik. The reason why there's such emphasis on Yusias Mitzrayim, the reason why there's so many mitzvahs that circle around remembering Yusias Mitzrayim is because this is the single os, the single sign, the single time in history when Hashem revealed Himself. And we have to constantly focus on it and fill in and Shema twice a day, number of times during the year where we stop and think about it because ultimately this is what helps a Jew to relate to Hashem, to see Hashem, to see the great miracles and ultimately his emuna and his belief totally focuses around this, and this is the single thing that helps a person understand, relate to, and see Hashem in their life.